Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On the Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On the Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. Okay, I'm Dan Nathan. This is OK Computer. I'm here with Rick Heitzman. When we are done talking macro markets, both public and private, I sit down with Brian Kelly, my good friend from CNBC's Fast Money. He is the portfolio manager at BKCM. That is a digital asset firm. We're going to talk a little macro, but he's also going to kind of lay out what's going on or what he's at least seeing in the crypto market. Rick, how the heck are you? Doing well. I'm glad we don't have to go deep on crypto today. We've had some non unhappy conversations, not very optimistic conversations, but at least I'm not BK today. It's interesting. What's going on in crypto is really important, I think, as it relates to what's going on in private tech, what's going on in public tech. I mean, BK has been making the point on CNBC's Fast Money and to me, and probably to anyone who would listen for the better part of this year, that at some point, Bitcoin in particular became a macro asset. And it became one of these things that a lot of macro fund managers were focused on, were using, partially because I think the liquidity and just the asymmetric sort of return profile it has had over the last 10 plus years or so. And let's be frank, I mean, people are kind of sick of banging around gold and crude and some of those other things. So I think it had a unique position that people claimed it was a store of value, but also had asymmetric upside. So you thought you had huge upside from a store of value you wouldn't get from gold or a masterclass or something like that. And therefore you talked yourself into it and also believed that there was a significant floor on that value, which I think in a very sad and scary way, a lot of people use leverage on their crypto assets. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we talked a little bit about that and you're seeing that with some of these stable coins and the yield farming. And that's part of this unwind, I think, that's going on. The other thing is, is that when you think about leverage from retail holders who came into the space, I think there's a pocket of risk that has not been accounted for that probably lives in these profile pick NFTs. And I'm not talking about the people who have the money paid a hundred grand for a crypto punk or a couple hundred grand, you're a celebrity and you're buying board apes. I'm talking talking about people who might have had profits in an altcoin or even Ether, Bitcoin or something like that, and then bought a bunch of PFPs that they thought were cool. They liked them for the culture. They liked the memes and they're stuck in them and they're illiquid and they might have leverage on them. And that could be a problem. So I guess what I'm seeing right now, Rick, and I want to talk a little bit about the macro because we're recording this Tuesday into the close. The stock market had a horrible day on Monday. The S&P was down nearly 4%. The NASDAQ was down nearly 4 
5%. The NASDAQ is down 30% on the year. The, the S&P is down 21% on the year. We're starting to see some really negative data points as it relates to housing. We're starting to see a lot of data points as it relates to layoffs, which you're going to see unemployment start to tick up. These were areas that you and I have been talking about, many of our co-hosts and guests over the last few months. It was hard to think how this couldn't happen in a way. So my question to you is, you've been in the markets, both public and private, for the better part of the last 25 years or so. Can you remember a time where there were so many macro cross currents and so many headwinds too. So cross currents means a bunch of stuff smashing into each other. Headwinds just mean what's coming straight at you. Yeah. I mean, probably the closest I remember was post-September 11th. In March 2000, you started to see the cracks in the internet bubble and you started to see the dot-com correction. Very similar to this. Things happened violently. It was jagged. And then people thought kind of come Labor Day 2001, things would get back to normal. And then September 11th happened. And that conflated our health, our safety, our economy, and everything else. That's probably the closest I've seen to where we are today with the pandemic, a shooting war, uncertainty in commodity prices and food around the world on top of, and I've said it a number of times, what does the labor market look like? You're still seeing elements of the great resignation where people thought you could trade NFTs professionally and still live at the beach. Those folks are still coming back. Capital is starting to cost something. There's so many crosswinds. It's hard to get signal. And I think the Fed struggling to find signal But I think the only signal that people are seeming to pointing to is the gas pump. And if the gas pump seems too high, you might see that 75 basis point increase. So let's just talk about this. So Fed fund futures were pricing a 50 basis point hike at the meeting that started today, ends tomorrow, and a 50 basis point hike for the July meeting. And all of a sudden, we've seen this huge rate move in just the last 24 hours as the Fed must have floated a trial balloon with the Wall Street Journal suggesting that 75 basis points could be on the table for tomorrow, partially because that hot CPI reading. So they want to hit inflation harder and they want to do it fast so they can get to a point, whatever they deem to be the normalized rate, I think they think it's around two and a half percent or so. So the two-year note has ripped ahead of that. It's gone from two and a half percent at the start of this month, Rick. Okay, here we are midway through to nearly three and a half percent. So the bond market is basically doing it for them. But I'll say this, man, you talk about getting some signal The Fed seems about as confused as everyone else I know who's trading crypto, trading stocks, trading currencies, trading anything right now, because I don't really see a scenario where the Fed has a calming voice right now here. And their dual mandate is obviously a big part of that is stable prices. And I think as our good friend Guy Adami would say, prices are anything but stable. Now, the flip side of that mandate is also full employment. They have full employment. It is basically back at pre-pandemic levels, which were 40-year lows. And the thing that I'm really starting to worry about here is that we have this negative wealth effect from the stock market being down. Listen, just because the S&P is down 20% this year, large parts of the stock market have been correcting for 18 months or so. We have housing that's starting to show some kinks in the armor a little bit. I don't know if you saw that Redfin notice about their layoff. Yeah, Redfin and Zillow just based on the headwinds. Even uh, Fannie and Freddie think real estate sales by number are going to be down 20% this year. 
Yeah, and you put that together with the stock market, you have a big negative wealth effect. You put that together with the layoffs, and then all of a sudden you have unemployment start ticking up at a time where prices, no matter if they come off and they peak at some point this summer in food and energy, that sort of thing, they're still going to stay unusually high at a time when interest rates are unusually high relative to the last 10 years. All of this does not spell something that is like, let's go out and by the dip, no matter what it is. So I'm just curious, we had this conversation with Jeff Richards of GGV two weeks ago, you, me, and him, and he was saying this, and you were in 100% agreement, is that a lot of founders that you see in the private markets, they're not paying attention to the macro. They're heads down, grinding, building. Is it about time that anyone who runs a business and has a fiduciary responsibility about the capital they raise and the people that they employ and the customers that they do business with, that they better start focusing on the macro because things are about to get weird here? Yeah, things have been weird. And, and you know, we've told people, hey, if you haven't gotten the memo, here's the memo. Cost of capital has increased exponentially. Here is what matters. The thing that constantly is getting retweeted is we've shifted from growth, growth, growth in 21 to in 22, unit economics, path to profitability, and capital efficiency. And we might have said that as a throwaway point in a board meeting in January. Come March, we were jumping up and down on the table saying that anyone that hasn't gotten the memo now is in real trouble. Because the best companies have already adjusted. The best companies did their layoffs, did their hiring freezes in the beginning of Q2, and they're about ready to play offense. So they've rationalized their employee base, they've focused on their unit economics, and they're ready to move from playing defense to playing offense. And if you're still playing defense, you're well behind the curve. And I think that everybody needs to get to a point where the reality is set in. And I think employment's going to get tighter. I think part of what we talk about the Fed and what you alluded to is, although there's full employment now, I think some of the choices that are being made now will lead to non-full employment. I mean, basically, every major company has said, to quote Dara again, hiring is a privilege. Almost everyone's doing layoffs. You didn't hear any of this this time last year. We actually, in a good way that was very empathetic, you didn't hear it at all during the pandemic. But I think that's going to materially change. And I think the Fed has to obviously keep one eye on the data, but also keep one eye looking forward where it's clear that we're not going to be able to maintain full employment along with the rest of these policies. Yeah. And I guess the worry right now, and at least as far as public market investors are seeing this, is that they see material deceleration from here. We know that there were some tough comparisons coming out of the pandemic. And you and I were talking about a couple of weeks ago, I was picking at the QQQ. I was picking at some fintech stuff. I was thinking about a little Shopify. Shopify had a great move from basically 300 to 400. Well, it's back at 300 now. I'm seeing a lot of stocks that had decent little rallies off of the lows that were down 60, 70, 80%, giving it all back. And in today's action, where we see a market that's trying to find its footing in front of a Fed move tomorrow, which might really signal a more aggressive stance. And I can't tell you that that will be good or bad for stocks, for valuations. I think what investors are starting to price in right now is stagflation, a period of higher prices, for longer on the inputs and then just slower growth. And that's the thing, you and me, you know, we've been doing this for 25 years. We really haven't had to contemplate that. We could look at traditional cycles and think about how long it takes to come out of them. You know, I've been focused squarely on the stock market for 25 years. And I just remember that from the highs in March of 2000 that you just mentioned to the lows in October of 02, it was more than 900 days 
900, okay? And the stock market, the S&P got cut in half and the NASDAQ went down more than 80%. And then again, in October of 07, into the financial crisis to the lows in March of 09, that was more than 500 days and the S&P was down close to 57%. And so one of the most important things there has been time. So if you're telling me that for 18 months, large parts of the stock market or the fancier parts or the shinier parts or the ARC parts have been selling off for over a year and a quarter, year and a half, that's fine. But the S&P is only down 21% right now and the NASDAQ is only down 30%. And so it might take lots of fits and starts, bear market rallies, vicious ones, and then new lows. And it makes it really hard to pick at values unless you're just going to do it in a dollar cost average format. I was surprised how well the market held up today, actually. We've been hearing there wasn't a whole lot of buyers, especially for growth tech. Not only have they gotten beaten up, but people from other sectors were seeing good opportunities with their own sector. So why would they cross over into a beaten up sector? So it's hard to extrapolate a data point of a single day. But I was surprised that held up, and I'm concerned of if the buyers are going to be there, especially as we see volatility. And one of the things that I think we're going to add to volatility is something we've talked about in the past, both retail as well as institutional leverage. And I think as we're starting to test these lows, you're going to begin to see margin calls from an institutional basis, and you've seen the beginning of some hedge funds blowing up. On the retail side, you've probably seen more of that on Twitter than you've seen in real life. And then we're... I think people were incenting leverage, say in places like crypto, I'm sure you're going to see some mass capitulation there as well. All right. So let's just play this out. Let's just say the Fed gets a bit more aggressive, inflation fighting. That means higher interest rate hikes and maybe for longer here. And we've been talking about this lag in the private markets. You're starting to see some down rounds. You're starting to see term sheets pulled. When I say you're starting to see, you're starting to see people tweet about it, right? And it seems like that's the place it happens. And so how bad could things get in private tech? We're seeing the layoffs here. Companies are really hesitant. I guess they want to cut costs well before they have to do a down round. And it really comes into their thinking. It's about time. Like, how much runway do I have? And can I afford not to do that? I'm just curious, what are some of the things that you're seeing without being particularly specific, I guess? Well, you hit on a couple. I mean, companies don't want to do the down round or don't want to go back to the markets because even the down round is for some companies a positive. I think there's a lot of companies that might get a no bid in this situation. And so what you want to do is say, hey, if I have money in the bank, how do I extend that runway till I could hit significant milestones? And there's two things you could do. You could either get more revenue and you assume you're getting enough of that already or as much as you can. And that might even soften if the economy softens, or you could cut your costs. And that's much more controllable. So people are cutting costs, doing layoffs, rationalizing their expense structure. I think we're starting to see people even rationalize things like software costs. And I think there'll be a rationalization of vendors there. And hopefully wanting to maybe avoid what's going to be a tough market throughout 2022. You mentioned about software vendors. These were supposed to be very defensible models, kind of recession-proof. And so we saw them, how quickly they came back during the throes of the pandemic in the first half of 2020. At this point, though, we had this situation where the unemployment happened so quickly. The government transfer payments were there. They were made so that people didn't lay people off. So if you had software licenses and seats in general, you didn't have to cancel them because your company was taking PPP, you were paying people or whatever. 
whatever. So now all of a sudden we saw this massive expansion, right, to fit a lot of demand that came with the hope that vaccines in late 2020 and the pandemic was supposed to be in the rear view mirror at some point in 2021. And now we're actually seeing cuts. And so I worry in the last couple of weeks, we've had Salesforce and there were some other companies like Workday that had some good numbers here. I feel like if you're too focused on what these companies just said about the perceiving period and not focused about what could happen in an unemployment environment where maybe we go from 3.6% to 4%, then you might be doing this wrong a little bit. So to your point about moving your feet, rationalizing costs, maybe thinking about a little bit about what could go wrong over the next, I don't know what you want to call it, six to 18 months or so, that's probably a better mindset than maybe going too quickly into an offensive mode. And I think that we're starting to see softness in software. And you're seeing as a lot of software companies, especially SaaS companies, which were set up as annuities, which only grew, you're now seeing, especially software companies that charge on per seat basis, if they're not growing employees every year and therefore you automatically get positive net dollar retention and you're doing layoffs, you're starting in the hole with negative retention. And even if your software is good and you're keeping the customer, there's just going to be less seats. So as that gets rationalized, I think you're going to see a hit, not only with the consumer who might feel weak because of unemployment, might feel weak because gas is so expensive, but also enterprises who are going to rationalize their costs, focus on ROI, and eliminate a lot of vendors. Yeah. So I would just say this, we're getting into the last two weeks of the quarter of Q2. We might see some more pre-announcements. I'd really kind of keep an eye on what companies, as they get into the start of July, that quarter has started. We may see companies pull guidance altogether if visibility is that poor, especially with the kind of macro and economic conditions moving as quickly as possible. And I think just today, Rick, on Tuesday at the close here, I saw a lot of stocks that had just been absolutely creamed of late make new 52-week lows. Snap, Uber, Shopify, Netflix is about there. And these are companies that have absolutely been nailed. And then running out from tech a little bit, JP Morgan making new 52-week lows. Target that had pre-announced just a couple weeks ago after had already guided down new 52-week lows. So I'm not sure the Fed, whatever they say tomorrow, I think if they only do 50 basis points, they're going to disappoint market participants and the stock market's going to take a leg lower. And if they do 75, it just doesn't seem that that might be enough either. And I'm not suggesting that they go much worse than that. I think if they were to raise a full percent, I think a lot of market participants would think that they're panicking. So my main point here is that I think the Fed doesn't have a clue what's going on. I think market participants don't have a clue what's on. Dumb little pundits like me. The Twitterati knows everything, though. Well, they know everything. The virologists, macroeconomists from Twitter know everything. 100%. I mean, I said this the other day. I mean, this is the sort of market where sometimes it makes sense to kind of close your Twitter, turn off the TV, really focus on the things that you know really well. And as an investor, and obviously as an operator too, John Chambers used to say this, the CEO of Cisco, control the things that are in your control and the rest will just kind of work themselves out. And I think that's why you're seeing a move towards costs. If you can control your costs, you have some cash, you control your destiny, and all anyone could ever ask for is being in control of their own destiny. Yeah. And I would say this, that also applies to investors. People are listening to this, trying to figure out when to get in. My view, and I've been saying it on the pod for a few weeks now, you have to, at these levels, start to dollar cost averaging, understanding that 
time is not going to exactly be your friend. You're never going to nail a bottom. But if you have investable capital, you don't do it on margin here. And you just start layering into some names that you think are being underappreciated that should go up over time. So to me, that's kind of my message here. I don't like as a trader to press lows. This is a really horrible feeling market. And I think if you get in the habit of trying to press a low on the short side because you're worried, and that could mean a long sale too. I don't think days like yesterday with the NASDAQ down 5% is a particularly useful exercise to be kind of pounding out the lows there either. Yeah. And also doing things you know. Don't chase. feels like it's hard to chase value in this market. And sticking with stocks you know, stories you know, you might have followed for a long time, your dollar cost averaging down because you have deep conviction on the long term and obviously take the longest view in the room. Well, we're going to keep doing this every Wednesday. They're going to come out. We're going to track it. I appreciate your thoughts, Rick Heitzman. Stick around, people. I have my good friend, Brian Kelly of BKCM. We're going to cover all the FUD in crypto. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dan. Hey, listeners. It's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Brian Kelly is the founder and CEO of BKCM, a digital currency investment firm, where he serves as the portfolio manager of the BKCM Digital Asset Fund, and he is also the author of the Bitcoin Big Bang, How Alternative Currencies Are About to Change the World, published in 2014. BK is a CNBC contributor and my friend, co-panelist on Fast Money. BK, welcome to OK Computer. I think this is your first time on OKC. You have been on on the tape with Guy, myself, many occasions over the last year or so. How are you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be on OK Computer. You know, a little housekeeping, as they say in the business. BK, it's your birthday. Happy birthday, buddy. It is. Thank you. Best birthday a fella could ever have being on this show. Well, there you go. All right, let's get into it a little bit because first things first, in your bio, I read that you wrote the Bitcoin Big Bang. And one of the things that, that I have always found really interesting, I read this, I think before you published it in 2014, and it is astounding. We're coming on almost 10 years since you started writing that book. And I always thought it was interesting that you called it the Bitcoin Big Bang, how alternative currencies are about to change the world. And it's interesting to me that you chose to call them alternative currencies back then, not cryptocurrencies. And do you regret calling it alternative currencies? Do you regret not referring to them as something other than digital asset? I'm just curious, like thinking about this in hindsight, what does that term alternative currency mean to you? That's a really good question because I hadn't really thought that through. But the choice was because I just didn't like the term crypto. It just reminded me of Tales from the Crypt. 
And so it just, for whatever reason, at that point in time, cryptocurrency, obviously I know why they call it that, but I didn't like it. And they are alternative currencies. And if you look at the history of currencies, they call parallel currencies, alternative currencies. So the probably the most famous one is the Weir franc in Switzerland, W-I-R. They call that an alternative currency to the Swiss franc. So that was the idea that you're going to have this whole host of alternative currencies. And I still think they are currencies, first and foremost. They've kind of morphed into this different asset class, but ultimately for them to be useful, they have to eventually have the characteristics of currencies. All right. Well, that's really important. You said morphed into a different asset class. And you've been saying this, I think, for some time now on CNBC's Fast Money. You've been calling it a macro asset. And I know that, again, in your digital asset fund, you have the ability to be long crypto assets or digital assets. You have the ability to short them. And so you, for the better part of this year, have been pretty downbeat on the whole crypto asset space here. Talk to me a little bit about why you came into this year thinking about it as a macro asset that you did not want to own given the macro environment. Frankly, it took me a couple months to figure out that it really was a macro asset that was going to fully respond to the Federal Reserve. But really at the end of last year, when you saw the correlation between the NASDAQ and Bitcoin go to almost 80%, That was the sign that this thing is now correlated and every institution is now trading it as part of their portfolio. And that's how it gets correlated with other assets. So when the Federal Reserve came out and said, hey, listen, by the way, we're going to stop printing money. In fact, we might even go the other way with QT, start taking liquidity back. That is going to directly impact any asset class. So to me, the Federal Reserve told you we want assets lower. That's the only way that we're going to control inflation. So Bitcoin was included in that asset class. Right. Well, let's just be really clear on this, though, because if Bitcoin, one of the primary functions was to serve as an inflation hedge, and I think I've heard you talk about this. This was back in February, while you were making the argument where you saw Bitcoin could make much lower lows. This was a couple months after the Fed had already pivoted from printing, signaling that they would be raising interest rates in March. And that's really when this thing started getting the snot kicked out of it. This next leg lower really did happen when the Fed finally did raise interest rates for the first time since 2018 or so. And then when they started the guide to be much more aggressive about it is really when we broke 40,000 and we broke 30,000. And now here we are hovering above 22,000 in Bitcoin. So are you surprised it doesn't act better because inflation readings are not moderating right now? So I would say today over the last week or so, I am surprised that it hasn't acted better. I am not surprised that it didn't act better when the Fed was fighting inflation because gold didn't act better, stocks didn't act better. And those the Federal Reserve said to you, hey, we are going to fight inflation. And so therefore, if you're in the market and you're looking 12 months down the road or 18 months down the road, you have to price in what it's going to look like 18 months from now. And so the Fed's telling you we're going to fight inflation. Therefore, I don't need an inflation hedge if the Fed's going to fight it. So that's why all the inflation hedges came off, in my opinion. Now, last Friday, when we had the CPI report, it became very clear that the Federal Reserve has lost control of of inflation narrative. And you also saw long-term inflation expectations based on the U-Michigan survey go to highs we haven't seen in about 10 years. And so that's an unanchoring of inflation expectations. You saw gold rip higher, although it's come back since then. Well, let's put it this way. Bitcoin should have reacted 
the same way gold did in that, oh, shoot, we need an inflation hedge now because the Fed doesn't have a hold of it. So I do need to hedge my portfolio against inflation. However, what's going on in the Bitcoin world is this massive deleveraging, not too dissimilar to what happened in 2008 in the traditional financial markets. Very similar thing is happening in crypto right now. And we've just got to wash that out before we can resume any uptrend. And I want to talk about that because you and I have spent some time over the last year talking about stable coins. And I know that you've been very clear about algorithmic stable coins. It's just this math experiment that doesn't really work. And there's a lot of people taking a lot of risk with a lot of leverage. And we're seeing that come unwound. But I want to take one step back. You just mentioned a lot of macro funds or institutions that were treating Bitcoin in particular as a macro asset, just try to quantify a little bit. You run a digital asset fund. You raise money and you deploy it, whether long or short in the space. There's obviously some VC stuff attached to that too. But give us a sense for what sort of institutions were actively trading the asset class and really thinking about it as this inflation hedge as they would put it up there with gold and other macro assets. Frankly, almost Every macro hedge fund that you can think of had a position in Bitcoin. Every big name. Paul Tudor Jones is the big public one. I just saw an interview with the head of Soros. They've been in Bitcoin and Ethereum and and a lot of names that you haven't heard of, even though they might be multi-billion dollar funds, they have been trading in crypto, really. And so the whole point here, just for the folks at home, is the way that generally a lot of these funds, and you know this because you were a big fund guy at one point in time there, Dan. The biggest huge. But the idea is the risk management runs at a portfolio. So if Apple's down or Microsoft is down, you have to cut risk on every asset you own, bonds, gold, copper, and Bitcoin. And so that's how they become correlated. And so that's why I kept saying, listen, this is a macro asset. It is responding to what the Federal Reserve is saying. It's trading just like every other macro asset. Therefore, you have to respect that and trade it that way. It's interesting when you think about Bitcoin, though, because, again, while it's been around for over a decade, I don't think you've had any real institutional adoption of it in the terms in which you're speaking of, right, BK? Before, it was a very speculative thing. You just had to hodl it because it was going to 500,000 because fiat currencies were going away and central banks run amok and all that sort of stuff. But when I look at Bitcoin over the last year, it really looks like a very e-liquid macro asset. And just from my experience, as far as on the trading front, and when we think about risk management and that sort of thing, from an institutional standpoint, it worked on the way up because it had these like 10,000 legs at a time, consolidate, move up. On the way down, it seemed to move a bit faster, like 20,000 legs, consolidate, little fake rally, 20,000 lower. And then we got to 40, went to 30, 30 to 20. And so to me, when it does it in these straight lines, it oftentimes has big moves over weekends, right? That sort of thing. It just doesn't seem like it's proving out to be that great macro trading vehicle to kind of serve the purpose that let's say gold has or the positions that people will take in FX. Yeah, I mean, I get your point, but I'm going to disagree with it a little bit. I'm going to be a little nuanced in that what you're doing when you're buying Bitcoin is you're speculating that it is going to take over the role of gold. So it's not quite gold yet. And to me, the investment opportunity is the fact that it's not gold yet. What is it? $300, $400 billion in market cap and gold is $10 trillion now. So to me, that's the trade. Once it becomes a $10 trillion asset class, I'm going to be less interested in it. But right now, what you're doing is you're betting on the network effect. 
that people are going to use this instead of gold, but in five years, in 10 years down the line. And so, yeah, it has all the hallmarks of a speculative asset, but that's exactly how it's supposed to act right now, in my view. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the fits and starts that Bitcoin in the crypto space in general has had. Obviously, there's scams, there's frauds, there's bubbles and things like NFTs and that sort of thing. But the big one here, and you just mentioned the term leverage before, it seems to be in DeFi. And it seems to be the idea of getting these unusual returns by staking crypto in an effort that some of these funds can basically offer these really high yields. And again, it seems simple when you think about it, but some of the smartest people supposedly in the space who've made the most money, the FTX guy, the list goes on and on and on. They can't really explain how those yields are generated with a real traditional economic function that has longevity to it. Explain a little bit because there's been tether FUD for like five years. I remember talking to you about it in 2018. So now we have this Luna situation blow up, tens of billions of dollars. We have this situation with Celsius here. It feels like we're just kind of scratching the surface. And just explain a little bit about what you think is going on because lots of crypto folks, for the better part of the last year, when they've been called out on DeFi, they said, what are you talking about? There is no leverage here. And that's total bullshit. Yeah, that's not right. So I think you do need to distinguish. There is an economic reason for DeFi to exist and an economic reason for yields to exist in the crypto space. And it's very simple. But what crypto has done is what Wall Street did is just make it super complicated. So the simple case is I have Bitcoin. I want to hold on to it, but I need to pay my bills in US dollars. You, Dan, say, you know what? I'm going to speculate against Bitcoin. I think it's going to go down. I got to borrow some Bitcoin. So I loan you my Bitcoin, you pay me an interest rate, you sell it short, I pay my bills, and that's the economic justification for a yield. But that yield shouldn't be 20%. That's probably more of like a high yield bond type of thing on that rate. So that's the real economic. However, what happened within DeFi is what people figured out is, okay, I can create this coin out of thin air and it has value. Therefore, somebody can give me the Bitcoin and I will pay them their interest in this other coin that has value. And since it's no cost to me because I created out of nothing, I can set that interest rate at whatever price I want because whether I give you one coin or a hundred coins doesn't matter to me, it didn't cost me anything. And so that is what was going on in terms of the high yields and how all these yield farming protocols worked in general. And I'm being very, very high level here. There's some nuances, but in general, that's what happened. And then what happened is you were able to then take the money that you brought in, let's say that coin you brought in, and you could pledge that someplace else and get a loan against that. And then you could then take that money and pledge it someplace else. And it became this daisy chain. And that's still going on. Some call it a Ponzi. Well, I don't know. So if everyone goes through the door at the same time, then you get these gates put up. I mean, this is what's going on right now. Right, exactly. There's nothing new about this. This has been happening for centuries in financial markets. It's just this time it's with a different instrument. And I don't mean that in a good way. This is a bad thing that's been happening in financial markets for centuries. Right. So question to you, is Luna and Celsius, is this the tip of the iceberg? Is Tether going to break? These are pretty big ones. Tether's a weird one. We do know just from press reports that Celsius had borrowed Tether by using Bitcoin as collateral. 
there also are press reports that that loan was paid down over the last couple of months. So if there's more of that out there, if there's more Bitcoin pledged as collateral against Tether, yeah, that's going to create a problem for Tether. Tether's a weird one, though, because it has this constant bid from Asia. And a lot of people think that that might just be capital flight out of China. I don't have any information to say whether it is or not. All I know is that there is a constant bid for Tether and it's usually from Asia. So for whatever that reason is. So I think there is more deleveraging to come without a doubt. I think what you really need to watch right now is Bitcoin, but also ETH and staked ETH, because there's a lot of money locked up in that. And then that money that was locked up in staking ETH was then traded for a liquid staked ETH called STETH. And then you could take that STETH and loan that out on Curve. And then you could get money back for that and go back and buy some more Ether, restake it, get liquid Ether again, come back and do the whole thing again. That's got to unwind. Yeah, but Beeks, for months and months and months, people have been talking about smarter people than I on many Twitter threads been talking about how there is no leverage in the system. And when you just describe what's been going on here, it's leverage on leverage on leverage on a very speculative asset. And so I bought my first crypto currency, digital asset, if you will, with you May 2017. You had me buy a Bitcoin at $1,700. You were like, yeah, it was $1,700. And I was kind of getting really interested. You know what? Next time we go to dinner, well, I want some good wine, man. Listen, I was totally hooked in that 2017 because of the action, because of the price action. And actually, whatever I made in Bitcoin, I lost in Bitcoin cash that year because I thought I was a genius doing all this dumb shit. And so I netted out probably not making any money. I guess my point is I've been buying ETH. Last month, I paid 2200 Last week, I paid 1600 Today, I paid 1100 I have no idea where it's going to go. I'm actually thinking about it a little bit from the standpoint of, okay, is this, you talked about the correlation to the NASDAQ. I'm starting to pick at some NASDAQ stocks that are down 70, 80%, taking a multi-year time horizon. And I'll put ETH in that bucket here. So let's talk a little bit about your view. Before Luna blew up and before the Celsius thing, you've been fairly bearish. When you come on CNBC and Mel always goes to you, calls you the Bitcoin baller and this and that, whatever. Over the course of this year, I haven't heard too many optimistic things out of your mouth as it relates to the ecosystem. Still long-term, I think you have a very bullish view. You just laid it out thinking about it versus, let's say, gold and the ability for it to go from a half a trillion to I don't know, five, six, seven, eight trillion, replace gold, if you will. But why have you been bearish and what would make you change your tune? And then are there any levels? Because Bitcoin right here, like I said, it's hovering above 20,000. That was the breakout level from the prior all-time high in 2017. It got there in late 2020. And when it broke out in December of 2020 at 20,000, it basically went straight to 40,000 and then it went to 60,000 and came back in. It made a new high late last year. And then really since the highs at 69,000 or so, it's just kind of been upper left, bottom right here. And I'm just curious, what makes you change your tune and are there price levels? So what makes me change my tune is something breaks in the economy and the Federal Reserve and other central banks have to come to the rescue. And I think that's going to happen. And that's why I do think there's going to be a massive generational buying opportunity in crypto at some point. It's not today, but at some point, let's call it in the next year to 18 months. I don't really know when it's going to be. But when you take a leveraged economy like we have, we have more debt to GDP than we ever have in the history of the world. Nobody's deleveraged. We've releveraged. 
When you take that and you raise interest rates and withdraw liquidity from the system, that creates a massive problem. That creates a huge slowdown. It's accelerated. So that's the bad policy that they're pursuing. We've also had some very bad luck when it comes to COVID, when it comes to Ukraine, those type of things. So that cocktail to me is very negative for the global economy. And central banks right now are saying, hey, we've got to get control of inflation. I get it. That's what's made me bearish. They've said we're taking money away. This whole game is about liquidity. When you remove the liquidity, you don't want to be long. It's as simple as that. Once something breaks, and I don't know what it's going to be, maybe it's going to be the high yield market. Maybe it's going to be equities. I have no idea what it's going to be. But when the central banks panic, and we're getting there because we saw the White House say, hey, listen, we're watching the stock market. So we're getting close to that. When central banks panic, They're going to start printing money again, or at least stop the QT. That's when I get bullish. What's interesting then, price levels, we're close to where it would be. You mentioned the 2017 high. That was kind of my eyeball target anyway, that we'd get down to 20,000-ish. That would be a natural place for it to kind of stop and dip buyers to pop in. Given the price action recently, my gut tells me we'll probably go lower, maybe 15,000, 18,000 at this point in time, but we're close. We need two things. We need the dip buyers and we need central banks to panic. So how do these risk assets act in a stagflationary environment, A? And B, is all the risk being accounted for in crypto? Now, we're seeing some air being taken out of DeFi, but think about all of the people who moved ETH and Bitcoin into these PFPs, into these NFTs that are not being marked to market right now and are very illiquid. Right. That's why I think there's still more to go on the downside because we haven't washed everything out yet. So I still think there's still the potential that we have much more to the downside. But the risk always is, and I think you said it last night on the show, is if you look at the top 10 percentage rallies in equities, I think seven or eight out of the top 10 rallies all came during bear markets. So from a trader's perspective, you got to be really careful about pressing shorts down here because you can get your face ripped off. But that's just trading. That being said, there absolutely could be a much lower low here. We don't know how crypto is going to act in a stagflationary environment because it didn't exist in a stagflationary environment. Like I said, it's not quite gold yet. You're speculating that it's going to be gold, but we don't know. We just don't know yet. You run a digital assets fund. You've run it for years and you and I talk offline a lot. I'm always really interested in the sort of, without being specific, LPs that you have that are coming looking for exposure to the space. I know routinely on Fast Money for years and years, you've said that you think people, individual investors should be exposed to the space, but not really more than 5% of your investable capital. You've always said low single digits. I'm curious, what are some of the calls you're getting right now? Are they less interested in it because because the price is down or are they more interested in it because the price is down? No, they're less interested. And Bitcoin and crypto in general is the strangest asset class that I've ever traded in that sense. Because there's not a agreed upon valuation metric, there's nobody who really wants to buy it when it's cheap. It is a complete FOMO asset. And one of my informal indicators are at the top of markets, the amount of calls we get that people want in is unprecedented. I could be on, a, on four calls a day at that point. There's cobwebs growing on my phone right now because nobody wants it. So it is without a doubt that type of asset class. There's nobody looking to buy Bitcoin right now, which to me as a contrarian, I kind of like that. Those are the times that I've made the most money in my life. So that's why I'm saying we're getting close to a bottom. 
we're getting close to a bottom, but it's going to take some time. Melton was on a couple of weeks ago and she said, we've seen peak to trough declines in Bitcoin on average of like 70% or so. And so your point is we're kind of getting close to that. But then the other thing that you really have to think about is time. And so the time it takes to work its way back to a constructive level, how it starts to make a series of higher lows and higher highs. This is any sort of risk asset. And then the last point I'll just make is that Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC, has made a lot of noise about who should be regulating this risk asset. The Biden administration earlier in the year had an executive order about it. Are we likely to see some better regulatory framework around it in a bear market than we would in a bull market? I don't know if we'll see better. I'm sure we'll see more regulatory framework about it because of what happened with Luna and because of what's going on with Celsius and some of those. That's just how it works. I mean, look at how many new regulations came out of the 2008 financial crisis. Look at how many came out of the 1929 Great Depression. We got the SEC that came out of it. So I am sure we will get more regulation because of this. Yeah, no doubt. The other thing is that you did mention time, which I think is really important to talk about because this peak to trough is, what was it, November is when it peaked? We're only talking seven, eight months here, really. We've seen Bitcoin bear markets go on for 20 months. So that is that process. It might take a while for this thing to churn around and chop around. We could go down to 10,000 and then chop between 10 and 15,000 for a year. And I guess the thing there is you'd lose tons of retail and institutional interest if that were to happen, which is exactly what happened in 2018 and 19. All right. So I'm looking at coin market cap and I'm looking at the third largest crypto asset is Tether at 71 and a half billion. I'm looking at USDC at 54 billion and I'm looking at Binance USD at about 18 billion. So let me ask you this. If this Luna Celsius thing were to catch on with Tether, USDC, Binance, let's just do worst case scenario here. Is there systemic risk outside of the crypto space to traditional financial markets in your opinion? Probably not. I don't think it's a big enough market. I mean, you might see some pockets of people that were levered up in crypto that maybe were more traditional funds. I don't know, long short equity funds or something that happened to get into crypto or loaning money out at seven or eight percent and got caught in it. But it's not a big enough asset class. It's less than a trillion dollars. I don't think it's big enough to be systemic. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's just one guy's view. You've been very sober about it. And one thing I will say is that I've learned a lot about this space. It's one of the reasons why I've just been interested. I'm not a practitioner by any means. And really, when I think about my exposure to it, I've always lived by your low single digits, 5% top as far as my exposure of investable assets. But also, it's been a fun trading vehicle. There's been good stories around it. I always say this, that some of the smartest people I know in finance, in tech, and I'm going to put you in there, have really migrated towards this space or take it very seriously. And my career over the last 25 years, anytime you've seen that level of interest from that high quality sort of practitioner, you have to pay attention. That's my two cents. Yeah, listen, I mean, the one thing that I will say is I am still wildly bullish on Bitcoin and crypto for the long run. If I could buy only one asset and not trade anything for the next 10 years, I'd buy Bitcoin tomorrow. And it might go to 10,000 and I might take some mark to market losses, but I still think there is a place for crypto. There's definitely a place for Bitcoin. And there's no question there's a place for the broader crypto ecosystem. We just have to go through the necessary washout here. 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it at that. Thank you very much for joining me on OK Computer BK. Happy birthday, my main man, and enjoy your birthday from parts unknown up there. I don't even know where you are. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Love the show. First time caller, long time listener. Love it. Yeah, all right, buddy. See ya. Thanks. See you, man. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.